bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, August 9th, 2011. I will start this week's podcast with a discussion of some key dates and the next steps of the deficit reduction efforts taking place in Washington, D.C. Then, in our new market tax credit discussion, I'll share some of the summary information that was released by the CDFI Fund last week about applicants for the 2011 new market tax credit allocation round. I will also discuss two new pieces of legislation introduced last week that would expand the use of new market tax credits. And finally, I'll examine the latest QEI issuance report. In the historic tax credit segment, I have another quick update on the IRS appeal in the historic Boardwalk Hall case. I will also bring you details about efforts in Missouri to significantly limit the state historic tax credit. Then, in our low-income housing tax credit discussion, I'll summarize new guidance released by the IRS that will provide relief to bond issuers and the affordable housing community. I'll also discuss the developments that came out of a recent low-income housing tax credit stakeholders meeting. And finally, in our renewable energy tax credit section, I'll discuss a market report that indicates a rebound in the wind energy sector, as well as a new federal report on energy investments and subsidies. So if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, as soon as the debt limit agreement fell into place last week, attention quickly turned to the select or so-called super committee that was created. As you may know, this super committee will be made up of 12 members, three from each party in each chamber. The group is tasked with identifying an additional $1.2 trillion or more in deficit reduction. It is generally believed that the committee can consider entitlement cuts and additional revenues, including cuts in tax expenditures. But there has already been some debate on this point. The Super Committee, by majority vote, will make its recommendations that the House and Senate must vote on yet this year. The Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Means Committee will be involved to the extent that they choose to make recommendations to the Super Committee. Both committees will be given the opportunity to review the legislation produced by the Super or Joint Select Committee, and they'll make recommendations regarding passage. However, they will not be able to amend the legislation that comes out of the Super Committee. Now, here are some of the key dates with respect to the operation of the Super Committee or the Joint Select Committee. August 16th is the deadline for the members of the Super Committee to be appointed. September 16th, about a month later, is the date by which the Super Committee must hold its first meeting. Then September 22nd is the deadline for Congress to consider a resolution of disapproval for the first installment of the debt limit increase totaling $900 billion. 
Between October 1 and December 31 is the time frame in which both houses of Congress must vote on a balanced budget amendment. Then October 14th is the deadline for House and Senate committees to submit their recommendations to the supercommittee. And all of these dates bring us up to November 23rd, and that's the deadline for the supercommittee to vote on a plan, a plan with a goal of $1.5 trillion in deficit reduction. Then, December 2nd is the deadline for the supercommittee to submit its report and, and this is key, legislative language to the President and Congress. And then finally, December 23rd, two days before Christmas, is the deadline for the House and the Senate to vote on the supercommittee's bill. Now, as noted in this timeline, members of the supercommittee will be named by this time next week. The Republican and Democratic leaders in the House and Senate will each pick three members to be on the committee. House Majority Leader Eric Cantor has reported that he's been receiving a lot of calls and emails from Republican legislators about serving on the supercommittee. Congressman Cantor did not say whether or not he himself wanted to be on the committee. Bloomberg did report last week that Senator Tom Coburn, a member of the Gang of Six, as well as the author of the Back in Black plan, has said he isn't interested in serving. He said, and I quote, I'm committed out. I've worked well over a year and a half on these issues. They just probably need some fresh blood. Close quote. Senator Orrin Hatch, ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, was floated as a likely contender for one of the three slots for Republican senators. But last week he made clear He would not want to serve on the panel even if he were asked. The Hill also reported last week that Senator Ben Nelson has also said he does not want to serve on the committee. Now, Senator Hatch's reasons for not wanting to participate in the committee was that tax revenues are going to be in play and he can't vote for increased taxes. House Majority Leader Cantor, however, said that the committee's focus should stay on cutting spending and warned that the House won't support increasing taxes. Republican leaders have pledged to appoint members who oppose tax increases. Similarly, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said on CNN on August 1st that any net increase in revenues is a non-starter. He said, and I quote, We are not going to raise taxes coming out of this joint committee. Close quote. House Speaker John Boehner has said he won't choose anyone for the Super Committee who would support a tax increase. Now their Democratic counterpoints, they plan to name lawmakers who will fight to raise new revenue. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, in a floor speech on August 2nd, said, and once again I quote, there has to be some revenues. Close quote. Turning more directly to the tax reform front, Ways and Means Chairman Dave Camp has argued against the super committee trying to accomplish deficit reduction and an overhaul of the tax system. Chairman Camp said, and I quote, there's nothing that explicitly says tax reform is part of this. It's best done on its own. Tax reform should be about tax reform, not about deficit reduction or raising revenues, close quote. While provisions raising revenue may not be in the super committee's final recommendations, nothing is certain. And whether or not tax expenditures are included in the short-term deliberations, it is clear 
that the respective chairs of the Senate Finance Committee and House Ways and Means Committee, the President and groups like the Gang of Six in the Senate, that all of them will continue to focus on the eventuality of tax reform. In New Market Tax Credit news, as many listeners may already know, the City of Fife announced last week that it had received a total of 314 applications under the 2011 round of the New Market Tax Credit program. This is the largest number of New Market Tax Credit applications that the City of Fife Fund has received since back in 2002, the program's first year. This is an increase of 26% over the number of applications received for the 2010 round. Furthermore, the aggregate total of $26.6 billion in New Market Tax Credit Allocation Authority that's been requested by applicants is an increase of 14% over the amount requested last year. It's also more than seven times the amount available of $3.5 billion of New Market Tax Credit Allocation Authority. The CDEs that applied under the round are headquartered in 44 states and the District of Columbia. CDFI Fund Director Donna Gambrell said last week that with so many communities still trying to get back on their feet after the recent economic downturn, that, quote, it isn't surprising that we have such a high demand for new market tax credits, close quote. The application deadline was July 27th. The CDFI Fund anticipates announcing the organizations that will receive awards in early 2012. Also last week, House members Ron Kine, Spencer Bacchus, Richard Neal, and Terry Sewell introduced H.R. 2718, the Disaster Tax Relief Act of 2011. And similarly, Senators John Kerry and Scott Brown introduced Senate Bill 1456, the companion bill in the Senate. The Disaster Tax Relief Act of 2011 would provide an additional $250 million in annual new market tax allocation authority for community development entities to make qualified low-income community investments in federally declared disaster areas. The bill would also give allocation priorities to CDEs that have track records of providing capital and or technical assistance to businesses or communities within the area or areas for which the new market tax allocation was being requested and would be expected to be used. The provisions of the Disaster Tax Relief Act of 2011 would be effective for major disasters declared after December 31, 2010. Now, you may be surprised to note that to date, in 2011, there have been 59 federally declared disasters, often affecting multiple counties. And the interesting part is that, according to FEMA, the average number of federally declared disasters per year is 34. Copies of the Disaster Tax Relief Act can be found online at www.newmarketscredits.com. And if you want more information about the bill, feel free to contact Brad Elphick. He heads up the Novogratic New Market Tax Credit Working Group, and he's in our Atlanta, Georgia office. Now, another New Market Tax Credit-related bill was also introduced in the House last week. Specifically, Congressman Jim Costa, Dennis Cardoza, and Jeff Denham introduced a bill that would increase the number of census tracts that qualify as low-income communities for the purposes of the New Market Tax Credit Program. If enacted, H.R. 2740 would make census tracts eligible for the New Market Tax Credit Program if the tract is adjacent to two or more low-income communities and 
if the Treasury Secretary does not have sufficient information indicating that the track is not a low-income community. The bill has been referred to the House Committee on Ways and Means. H.R. 2740 can also be found online at www.newmarketscredits.com. In closing, we have our monthly QEI update. The Community Development Financial Institutions Fund recently released the July Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. The report identifies the dollar amount of allocation authority that has been issued to investors and the amount remaining to be issued. In July, about $714 million of Qualified Equity Investments, or QEIs, were finalized. This is twice the amount that was finalized in June. Now, we did predict last month that QEI activity would continue on an upward trend through the summer. This is because applicants in the ninth round of allocation applications must meet specific QEI issuance prerequisites in order to be eligible for another allocation of tax credit authority. The amount of available new market tax credit allocation authority remaining is just more than $7 billion as of August 2nd. A copy of the QI report and a graph that illustrates the amount of QIs issued, as well as the amount of authority remaining, can be found online at www.newmarketscredits.com. In historic tax credit news, last week we reported that procedural steps taken in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals might have been an indication that the IRS would stop pursuing its appeal in the case of historic boardwalk hall versus commissioner. We learned last week this is not this is not the case. The IRS has indicated that a mistake in the filing process had caused some confusion, but that the IRS is not accepting a dismissal in historic boardwalk hall. The error has reportedly been resolved and the IRS's opening brief is due September 12th. Now turning to the state of Missouri, Governor Jay Nixon used a speech to school administrators last week to press his case for reducing state tax credits for historic preservation and low-income housing. The Missouri News Horizon reports that Governor Nixon told the Cooperative Conference for School Administrators that the best way to find more money for disaster recovery and the state's school foundation formula is to, and I quote, rein in the uncontrolled growth of tax credits, close quote. Governor Nixon reported that the problem is, and I quote, tax credit programs have built up a powerful political clientele, close quote. Now, we've reported in previous podcasts how Governor Nixon has called a special session for next month in an effort to pass a sweeping piece of legislation that would overhaul the state's tax credit system. That overhaul is likely to include placing caps on Missouri's historic preservation as well as their low-income housing tax credits. In low-income housing tax credit news, the affordable housing industry breathed a collective sigh of relief last week when the Internal Revenue Service released additional guidance on bond issue dates and private activity volume bond caps. Specifically, in Notice 2011-63, which was released on August 3rd, the IRS provided guidance on when the IRS considers state and local bonds issued for purposes of volume cap limitations. Notice 2011-63 supplements 
guidance to the general rule that the IRS issued last year in Notice 2010-81. Under Notice 2010-81, a bond is treated as issued on the issue date of the bond, rather than the issue date of the issue that includes the bond. Now, this interpretation can have an adverse impact on the drawdown bond financing structures that are often used for developing affordable housing with low-income housing tax credits. The rule applies to volume caps on private activity bonds, but it also applies to the amount and timing of qualified Gulf Opportunity Zone bonds. Now, the IRS reports that it received numerous comments from concerned bond issuers who had formerly treated bonds as issued on dates other than those provided in Notice 2010-81 that, as I mentioned, was released last year. As such, the IRS has released supplemental information about bond issue dates. Notice 2011 clears up some of the questions as to when a bond is issued and how that interacts with your bond volume cap. Under the notice, an issuer may treat a bond as issued either on the issue date of the bond under the general rule issued last year, 2010-81, or 2011-63 creates a new rule where the bond can be treated as issued on the issue date of the issue, provided, however, that the issuer meets additional requirements. The additional requirements are that the issuer issue all the bonds by no later than the earlier of the deadline for issuing bonds, which makes sense, or the end of the maximum carry-forward period for unused volume cap in order to allow the state to preserve the ability to reuse the bonds. Notice 2011-63 does instruct issuers who use the alternative option after August 3rd, they need to write or type, filed in accordance with Notice 2011-63, state and local bonds, volume cap, and timing of issuing bonds, kind of a lengthy uh, quote, but you need to type all of that at the top of the applicable information reporting return. Notice 2010-81, the notice issued last year, as well as the issues surrounding drawdown bonds, they were all covered in the May issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. Now, we will discuss Notice 2011-63 and what it means for affordable housing development in an upcoming issue of the Journal of Tax Credits. In the meantime, you can visit the Affordable Housing Resource Center at www.taxcredithousing.com to read both notices. You can also see an example of how the guidance should be applied. You can also feel free to contact my partner, Mike Morrison. He heads up the Novogratic Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Working Group, and they spend a lot of time on this issue. And if you want to reach him, just contact our San Francisco office. I also wanted to share with you information from a meeting that was held last week. Specifically, the National Council of State Housing Agencies, in partnership with Enterprise Community Partners and the Center for American Progress, convened a wide cross-section of the low-income housing tax credit industry for a meeting. NCSHA reports on its blog that at the meeting, stakeholders discussed the continuing campaign to defend and promote the low-income housing tax credit in Congress, as well as within the administration, all of this in the face of deficit reduction and tax reform efforts. More than 30 stakeholder groups participated in the meeting, which was intended to inspire broader industry contact with key members of Congress, as well as to intensify grassroots and media activity. 
The group also discussed the value of achieving consensus around a small set of low-cost, non-controversial changes to strengthen the program. After considering several proposals that have been put forward by various organizations as well as administration, the group agreed to support provisions that would fix the 9% credit at 9% permanently. It's really not so much fix it as it is to create the 9% floor, which is likely to seem like a fix because interest would have to rise rather high to be above 9%, but it's basically to extend indefinitely the current 9% floor that expires at the end of 2013 or technically expires on December 31, 2013. But they agreed to support this 9% floor and then also to support a 4% credit floor for allocated acquisition credits. Now, because of federal budget cost concerns, this 4% floor for acquisition credits would not apply to projects that were being financed and, more significantly, were entitled to tax credits by virtue of using taxes and bonds. The National Council of City Housing Agency said it continues to regularly convene a smaller group of low-income housing tax credit stakeholders to focus on strategy and to help lead the larger coalition. This smaller group is one that Novogratz and Company is very involved with. This smaller group, in addition to Novogratz and Company, includes the National Association of Home Builders, the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition, Enterprise Community Partners, LISC, the Center for American Progress, the Housing Advisory Group, the National Housing Trust, and numerous other organizations. Turning to renewable energy tax credit news, last week the American Wind Energy Association reported that the U.S. wind energy industry continued to rebound in the second quarter, with 2,151 megawatts of electrical generating capacity installed, in total in the first half of 2011. This is an increase of 72%, compared to the same time in 2010. However, analysts at the American Wind Energy Association cautioned that without stable policy, such as an extension of the production tax credit, the industry's recovery will stall. The production tax credit, as most of our listeners know, is set to expire at the end of next year, at the end of 2012. The association reports that project activity, as well as orders, for 2013 and beyond are scant because of the lack of a predictable business environment. Now, this has caused layoffs and even bankruptcies in some American manufacturing plants. Ironically, a recent Department of Energy report suggests that because of the production tax credit and market stability over the past five years, domestic content in the U.S. wind energy reached a record high of 60% through 2010. Now that brings us to our next topic for this week. Late last week, the U.S. Energy Information Administration released a 105-page report on direct federal financial interventions and subsidies for energy in 2010. Now the U.S. Energy Information Administration, or EIA, issued the report in response to a request from House members Roscoe Bartlett, Marsha Blackburn, and Jason Chaffetz. They asked for an update to a similar report that EIA prepared in 2008. That earlier report provided a snapshot of direct federal financial interventions and subsidies in energy markets in fiscal year 2007, focusing on subsidies to electricity production. Now, the 2010 report discusses five program categories. They are direct expenditures to producers or consumers, 
tax expenditures, research and development, loans and guarantees, and fifth, electricity programs serving targeted categories of electricity consumers in several geographic regions of the country. Questions have been raised about the report's ability to give a full picture of the subsidy landscape. According to a Climate Progress article, EIA delayed releasing the report in late July because of concerns about the narrowness of its findings. However, the report does provide some interesting information about government support of renewable energy. So we've called a few figures for our podcast listeners. The report found that the value of direct federal financial intervention more than doubled between 2007 and 2010 from $17.9 billion to $37.2 billion. EIA found that the growth in renewable energy subsidies primarily came from the Section 1603 program. Because the program awards a grant in exchange for the 10-year tax credit, the upfront cost for the federal government is much higher. EIA noted that if the wind and solar plants that use the grant program had instead taken the 10-year tax credit, the subsidy value reported in 2010 would have been lower. Of the $4.2 billion expended through the 1603 program in 2010, 84% went to wind energy projects, 11% went to solar, 3% went to geothermal, and 1% went to biomass projects. EIA reported that $14.7 billion in subsidies for renewable energy in 2010 were broken out as follows. Direct expenditures, $4.7 billion, Department of Energy Loan Guarantee Program, $269 million, and tax expenditures, $8.2 billion. And of the $8.2 billion in tax expenditures, the largest amount by far went to biofuels. They received $6.3 billion. Wind was second with $1.2 billion in tax expenditures, and solar received $120 million. And then, of the $6.2 billion in Recovery Act-related subsidies, $4.9 billion went to wind, $788 million went to solar, and $228 million went to geothermal. Now, the EIA also found that in fiscal year 2010, the federal government did provide $130 million in investment tax credits, as well as $1.5 billion in production tax credits. Furthermore, there was $180 million in the Advanced Energy Manufacturing Facility Investment Tax Credits, the 48-CAP-C credits. It's interesting to note that the PTC is estimated at $1.5 billion for 2010, and this is more than triple the amount for fiscal year 2007. There, it was about $426 million. EIA's study is extensive, and what I've just listed for you is a sampling of the information it contains. If you want to read the report in its entirety, I'd encourage you to go to the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Resource Center at www.energytaxcredits.com, and you can click on the Resources button. The report is entitled Direct Federal Financial Interventions and Subsidies in Energy in Fiscal Year 2010. Now, turning to Congress, as many listeners know, the House of Representatives did recess last week after they passed the debt limit deal. This means that last week's Joint Committee hearing on energy tax policy was postponed. We understand that it's going to be rescheduled for the fall. So stay tuned to future podcasts for more information about the rescheduled hearing. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. 
This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.